As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Bro History. It's Henry Zamoda, uh, and I'm joined with my friend Jose Nino. What's up, Jose? Uh, nothing much, Henry. Thank you so much for having me on again. It's always a pleasure chatting with you. Yeah, no problem, man. I appreciate it. Uh, Danny Abdeljabar is um, he's traveling right now. He, he's actually in Europe, and I actually got a funny, I got a message from Citizens App saying that if you're in Europe, be careful. <laughs> um, for for protests, and I was like, "Well, Danny's in Europe, but Danny can blend in to the protest, <laughs> given given his given his last yeah. name." Yeah. Um, so I'm sure yeah. he's all right. But uh, what's up, man? How how is everything? Oh, I've just been quite busy doing writing for various sites, and also my Substack, the usual grind. Um, I've gotten some new gigs, and I've really liked some of the pivots that I've made in terms of content. I'm still doing international relations content, but I'd say I'm doing a lot more of it now. And I generally enjoy that more than talking about domestic politics for the most part. Yeah. And that's why I wanted to speak with you because there's not that many people um, who have like a good holistic knowledge of, of what's going on in the world in terms of geopolitics. And I think you're really, really good at that. Like, that's something you're really strong at. Like, understanding how, you know, what happens in one country is going to impact something that's going to happen in another country or how it's going to impact, like, U.S. domestic politics. And you're really good at putting that all together, which which is really rare. And it's exactly why I wanted to speak to you about the current, um, you know, the current situation, obviously, in, in uh, Israel and Gaza, um, just to date this, just because who knows what could happen between, I mean, even before this podcast is done, um, it is October 19th at 8.18. In about an hour, Joe Biden's going to address the nation, which I suspect he's just going to be like, we have unequivocal support for Israel. What do you think? Yeah, I think that the um, he's gonna say uh, make some remarks about like how Israel is like the only democracy in the Middle East, and that we're our support to be steadfast for it in this trying time. And I think he might just announce also like um, how they're gonna deploy a lot of military aid and um, to save off any potential attacks by by militant groups ranging from obviously Hamas to Hezbollah. I don't think that it's going to lead to any direct escalation for the time being, but who knows because there's just so many moving parts right now and there's a lot of 
things that we have not been made aware of or that is probably still in the gray zone. And with that in mind, I think it it behooves us to just sort through these facts and then see what happens because we are at a very volatile geopolitical moment. So anything can pop off. I don't think that this is going to extend outside of Gaza. I don't think it will. I think it certainly can, though, and I could certainly be wrong. Um, I think for the most part, like the goal is going to be to contain this in in the Gaza Strip. And and Hezbollah, I think, will put pressure on Israel. There's going to be some weird things that happens with some of the some of the militias in Iraq. They're probably going to send things like drones to air bases and things that will most likely be shot down. Um, you know, earlier today, there was um, apparently the Houthis sent some drones yeah, I saw up that. the Red Sea. Yeah. And then there was a couple. Uh, there was a couple Iraqi. Some of the Shia militias had sent some some drones to a base, but nothing was harmed. They were shot down immediately. But it shows you like there's these little games being played where where you know the the Iran the Iran backed groups, and I say that loosely when I say when I say the Houthis, but more so like Hezbollah and the Iraqi groups. I think they're going to do some things really just to say, hey, we're here, but. I don't think that they're going to really invade Israel. Like yeah. that would just be that would just blow everything out of proportion. Like I feel like that would be highly unlikely. That's my opinion as well. Especially when it comes to Lebanon because that's what you're hearing I guess what the big concern is and that's what the that's what I'm reading why the Israelis aren't going into Gaza because they're scared of fighting a two-front war. So you know, the threat is that if they go into Gaza, then Hezbollah is going to invade from the north. And, and that's that's probably why the aircraft carriers are there um, to just say, you know, just just as a preventive measure. But Lebanon's having so many problems like they have such a bad financial crisis right now. And, um, you know, they're any kind of like ethnic fight can erupt as a civil war in Lebanon. Um, that's how they always started. You know, like ethnic fights in different towns that kind of spread into overall war, but um, I just don't, I just don't see it. I hope it doesn't, because it would just be horrible. Yeah, likewise, I don't think much is going to happen, even with respect to uh, the military operation in Gaza, because I think like a direct, like, urban warfare operation that Israel would conduct would be just a like quagmire waiting to happen they're just gonna the idf will just um incur some pretty significant losses and it's just going to it's gonna be a lose-lose because i think that that kind of like crackdown of it there's like a lot of collateral damage israel's arab normalization projects might be just on pause for now and some may even reverse a bit because the fact is we we now live in the era of alternative and social media. So Israel cannot get away with a lot of its uh, geopolitical machinations like it could before in the legacy media era. And there is much more pressure now on Arab states to not really go full normalization route or much less like forge a public military alliance with Israel. And so it's it's definitely 
definitely factoring all of that in um, is not taking it lightly because it, it is at a very sensitive moment in its history. Because prior to this, Israel was in a state of like a cold civil war between the ascendant um, ethno-religious elements of its society beginning to flex their political muscles and the Ashkenazi like secular elite that have dominated Israeli politics since its founding. And I just think all these factors, both domestic and foreign policy-wise, could fundamentally alter uh, the political structure of Israel. And I actually am of the opinion that um, that Israeli state will not look the same in a few decades due to changing demographics and just like the realities of like multipolarity where it can no longer... Um, throw its weight around like it could with like the U.S.'s full backing. Well, what do you think it could look like? I think that it could turn into, honestly, um, a quasi-failed state, especially if all these like settler types and other uh, really like religious fanatic Israelis um, take control of nearly all structures of government from like the military to like the legislative bodies because these people they're going to very likely um staff them with like cronies are much uh, more fanatic and i'd argue they're also much less competent so you're going to see like a wholesale deterioration of governing practices and even like infrastructure and then it um and not to mention like these really just brutal crackdowns against Palestinians that I think will turn into like really nasty miscalculations um, on a geopolitical scale that will turn into like a pariah state, both in the Middle East and abroad. I just think that its future does not look that great uh, when you factor in that and then also the ultra-Orthodox, which end up being on the public dole more often than not. And they're um, exploding in terms of population. Like Israel, um, in many respects... There's a good case to be made that it might not make it in one piece by its centennial in 2048. And things aren't looking that good. Even prior to this Gaza attack, as I mentioned before, um, there there looked like there was like a coup um, being hatched by the elements of like the Israeli deep state against the Netanyahu coalition. When you look at the situation in Gaza, and it's one of the reasons why I think they're in a state of paralysis where... They're saying that they're about to invade, but so far there hasn't really been that big of a sign. All the support, though, from the West, from America, um, it seems like they have the green light, and that's what they're expecting. They're expecting an invasion into Gaza, so maybe that will happen. But in Israel's position, they're kind of in a situation where every single option is bad because you know option one is to invade Gaza and end up in a quagmire. You end up killing how many, however many people. I think there's about three thousand dead already in Gaza. You know, as, as much as as cold as it is to say, when Israel when Israel has these um, conflicts with Gaza, there's there's like a body count. There's like a body limit that they can't really go past before the international community starts to say, "All right, all right, settle down now." Um, usually that number has been around the 2000 mark where the international community jumps in. It's like, all right, too many people are dying. This is going to cause like the Arab and the Muslim world to explode. If this keeps on going on, 
you have, you know, let's, let's rail this in. And then, you know, is Hamas won't be totally destroyed. It will, you know, they'll just take out maybe, I don't know how many they'll take out. It won't be enough for them to neutralize the threat forever. And, um, you know, the saga continues in their position, you know, if they go into Gaza, they'll take casualties, which Mm -hmm. they don't want to take. And if they don't go into Gaza, then, I mean, it's going to be bad politically that they just had this terrorist attack. I mean, the the terror attack was absolutely horrendous. Like, let's 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 just be completely serious. It was like, you know, ISIS level head chopper, crazy, insane. Um, it was like a it was like a Genghis Khan type type raid. Um, and for them not to be able to react to that is just like a really, really. Um, you know, it's, it, it makes them seem like they're in a big position of weakness. A lot of the press and, and a lot of the mainstream press, and I'm seeing it from Israeli press. I'm seeing it from um, a lot of press from Europe, from England, is urging Israel not to go in because they're going to enter in a quagmire. That they're that this is an accident waiting to happen. That you know, it's going to be first of all a hard military operation, and second of all it's going to really just destroy any type of normalization with, with other, with other Arab countries, or at the very least put it, put it at a halt um, or a hiatus yeah. until yeah. things, things That's what start I think. to normal. I mean, it will take years, you know, this is not something that would be resolved. There'd have to be a, a significant amount of uh, memory loss before they started negotiating again. And then a good amount of bribery to go along with that. But, you know, it's, it's a tough situation because, you know, ideally, there, there's just like there's no in a perfect world, you would say, OK, the, what Israel needs to do is resolve the conflict with the Palestinians. But that's another thing. There's just not there's just no realistic option of how yeah. that would happen. Yeah. Um, the, yeah. One of the more interesting things um, that. Uh, struck out to me was that there was no rally around the flag effect that this terrorist attack created like say like 9-11 like Netanyahu's government is put, being put on blast like oh, politically dude, yeah, it's terrible Haaretz yeah. is tearing him apart there's articles from there was an article from Jerusalem Post I think it was uh, or was it Times of Israel it was um, you know one of the more center uh, newspapers in Israel saying that he he created Hamas um you know, this is his blowback. Blowback, yeah. Putting it on his shoulder. That. Yeah, yeah. Israelis are not exempt from that. Yeah, I um, I think that like basically like um, in, in many many respects, this is a sign that Israeli state is not as um powerful or cohesive as people think it's going to be, and it's going to get worse, as I mentioned before, with this new form of factionalism that's emerging. Now, as like the ethno-religious right gets a lot stronger, because like these type of people, uh, to put it bluntly, are like brutes. They don't really have um, the same kind of uh, tact, ju- yeah, tact, yeah, tact and savviness that say like the original like Zionist like founders of Israel had, like the more like secular types. They didn't have like the same type of like state craft and like um ability to conduct like um basic like governing functions on a daily basis i think the like the introduction of this element um especially with Edomar ben kivir even though he's out of the picture for now 
Um, I think it's just a sign of like just a lot of like crazy tensions that are going to emerge. And, and like not just like domestically, I think even um, some of the stuff they do with the Palestinians to um, could really uh, destroy Israel's rep um, with these type of people um, gaining power. Because, um, yeah, I do think that like, for example, like the idea of like a two state solution is largely like not even talked about anymore and especially with Israel just becoming like even more like hard right due to like the orthodox and ultra orthodox element becoming even stronger in Israeli politics it's a bad situation all around and let's not even get started with regards to the US too if there's a deterioration of the US's um economy and with the fact that it's going to be doing like a dual containment of Russia and China, um, Israel just simply won't be able to count on um, the U.S. as it's like most like reliable ally. Like a lot of these factors are probably uh, being considered now by the present Israeli ruling classes uh, after real now that they're realizing that like, yeah, Israel's um, days of being like an expansionist, like, um, irredentist, um, type of regional power that wants to create like a greater Israel or like over like now, um, they're, they're going to have to go back to basics to make sure that they get a lot of domestic stuff sorted out and somehow handle the issue of Palestine in a much more rational way. Because I think the more they push this, I do believe that this will um, result in like some type of fragmentation of the Israeli state in the next few decades. Because there's just so many, so many powder kegs in that country uh, waiting to happen. Yeah, man. It was just like ever since Yitzhak Ravine was was assassinated, it's just been like slowly, slowly creeping up, and this is the end result. And you know, it's not like Yitzhak Ravine was act, was was um promising the moon to the Palestinians like you they were promising them they were you know if the Oslo went through it would have been a state within a state type thing you know like it wouldn't have been you know an, its own nation state but it would have had some level of sovereignty and it would have been a lot better than the situation now at this at this point with with the settlement issue it's just a two state solution it's just you can't the only way that you could do it is if you would expel the Jewish settlers there. So you'd have to essentially, I guess, I don't know, you can even say it, ethnic cleanse your own demographic or your own population. You'd have to remove them from there. And that's not going to happen. Like, I, I don't see that happening unless there's just like a really big flip politically where they, you know, swing more to the center somehow. If, you know, if this is kind of like their moment where, okay, these guys in Likud have taken our country to the brink of destruction and my friends who are who are more on the zionist side who are not just like your standard um you know conning uh everything that israel does is holy and great but they're like realistic zionist um they're like man if i was if i was in control of the government um i would tell those settlers to leave like that like that would be the first thing is to bring those settlers back say here's your state and then close the borders and then that's that's it and then, you know, issue resolved. Obviously, it's a lot more complicated than that, but that would be the start. But on the flip side, it's, you know, if they continue to, they can't kill their way out of this. 
You know, no, like they, they can't, can't kill. No. There's too many people. They can't kill enough people. Even if they killed a hundred thousand people in Gaza, which is they're not going to do. Like they were, that would just be so outrageous that there would, you know, be. Um, it, it would. It would. It just would. Wouldn't be able conceivable. Um, that's still what ten percent of the population of Gaza, or or five percent. There's two million yeah. people. Yeah. So five, yeah. It just seems very hopeless. Like I was like thinking the other day and like, what is, what is the realistic solution to this? Like, how do you, how do you solve the pro the Palestinian problem with it in Israel? Like, how do you integrate them into the, into the Arab world so they can have partnerships? And I was like, is there like a massive reparations project you could do? Like, could you literally just pay off the Palestinians one by like one by one and give them reparations and then ask them to move politely but forcibly to to some other country. Like, is that oh, the only way? Oh, that is actually. Um, I know um, a good deal of um, Israelis, like that are not just like Likudniks, but part part of the Israeli right. That that's actually a pretty mainstream position um, uh, among certain elements of like the fringe Israeli right to just pay off like Palestinians to move to Arab countries. Um, I forget his name. The that one guy, uh, uh, that was part of like the like Israel's like Libertarian Party, like Zahut or whatever. Um, uh, Moshe Fagan, uh, advocated for that, and that's actually a pretty common policy proposal among certain Israeli right wing parties. But like, there's like, it's becoming like a freak show on the Israeli right though because of the settler element. That's um. That has a life of its own, and even if you talk to your average like Likudnik, they even will tell you that like yeah, like that's like a problem they want to go away, but it just won't because these guys they're really adamant and they're becoming like pretty well organized too, as seen with the rise of Itamar Ben Gavir, prodigies of Mayir Kahani, who yeah yeah was, you know is was very 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 far to the right like the other day i was just i was like um this is this is ben gavir's um idol and i sent him the book and it's just titled you know one of his one of his books was just called they must go yeah <laughs> they that's must the go mind, that, that's the mindset of a lot what do you like what do you think that book's about they must they must go yeah. um and i was like looking at the reviews of it on amazon and it's just like great points. <laughs> it was like five stars, like a, a real profit. It's just it's tragic, man. Like I really don't wish any harm on you know. I criticize Israel's policy a lot, but I don't wish any harm in any anyone there. And I feel real bad for the people who have to suffer through just all this craziness. I mean, I know some people who who I don't know anyone directly, but I know people who've had family killed there. Um, it's terrible, but it's like, you know, they created, I was talking to Danny about this last week and the Zionist project has created a state where it's the least safe to be a Jew. Like there's nowhere, there's nowhere more dangerous for a Jew than Israel. Yeah. No question. Unironically, un un it's just, it's just, it's sad. And, you know, I guess with with the state of Israel, it's 
when it was created, you can certainly understand the motivation to to create a state, like to have like a a state, um, you know, a powerful state fight on behalf of your group to to work in the interest of your group. And you can certainly understand the motivation given, you know, the history of the late 19th and, and 20th century. And I could certainly understand why American Jews supported it so much. Um, I think there was a lot of fear from American Jews in the 40s and 50s that, you know, since a lot of them were communist or, or you know, a lot of them were were sympathetic to the Soviet Union, that there could be a crackdown on them when during like the, the 50s and the beginning stage of the Cold War, um, they thought the state could come after them. So I, I can understand like the motivation of like having this state as not only a refuge, but as, as like a powerful entity to fight on your behalf. But it's just the state of Israel was created in the time of ethnic cleansing and not just like, you know, the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians where, you know, there's 700,000 of them were, were, were clearly like, it's not even historically debated in Israel. It's just common knowledge. Like any Israeli historian will, will say like, yeah, they were ethnically cleansed, but they were cleansed in that, I guess, during the time where that was just completely normal for that decade. You know how many Germans were cleansed from from Czechoslovakia and Poland at, and after the war, sixteen million. Um, so that seemed like a minor ethnic cleansing compared to the context of what was going on in Europe. But the state just never changed. Like it's it's um it's it's like a twentieth early twentieth century state living in the post Nuremberg world. Yeah, and um, very accurate. Now, 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 liberals in the U.S., you know, they're they're still complete support for for Israel due to lobby efforts, but those lobby efforts really are creating an artificial support. There's not, I don't see, and like you mentioned earlier, that you're not seeing the rally behind the flag moment. I'm not seeing it either. Like if you read about like the '70s and during the '73 war. And, you know, there was, there was a million Jews marching in Brooklyn. Like, if there was an attack on Israel, you, you know, there'd be Israeli flags and there'd be marches everywhere. And there'd really be a strong rally around the flag effect. You're not seeing that that much. You're seeing way more Palestinian movements. And not only in Europe, but in the U.S. as well. Yep, I was at a pro-Palestinian vigil yesterday at um, UT. And it was quite large, actually. Um, yeah, one of the more shocking stats I saw, uh, I don't know the exact numbers off the top of my head, but even like evangelicals under 40, they're starting to not be like that pro-Zionist either. And that's actually scary if you're an Israel firster, because that's the primary demographic they're going to lean on to like now, because, um, the GOP is right now, like Israel's best friend politically in the U S because, the Democrat Party, the because of its like changes over the last few decades, it's become very like lukewarm, if not like outright hostile towards um Israel lately. Especially, and that's gonna grow if Israelis of uh, the Israeli government takes a much stronger ethno-religious character. And I agree with you that um really Israel in many respects um 
it's starting to resemble like uh, an interwar period, like authoritarian country, especially now with those judicial reforms that the Netanyahuites are trying to implement. Um, it just looks like another like ethno-nationalist state, like um, like say like in the Baltics or like um, in like Romania in like the 1930s or whatever. It's uh, and it, it's nowhere like does it like resemble like some like woke liberal state like in Europe or like the US or the broader Anglosphere, which is actually like really hilarious when you think about it that like the US and its satrapies in NATO um, will continue to give like this increasingly ethno-religious state more uh, military aid and diplomatic cover. Israel and Ukraine and Ukraine is just another like... Oh yeah, the... <laughs> like this super duper like they just contradict like all the all the values that supposedly that the the that you know the the western block of the world stands for but it's it's just i, I think that's one of the reasons why in in i'll take this back a little bit comparing this with the war in ukraine i call the war in ukraine now the liberal jihad because that really was a holy war for liberal Democrat types in, in the U.S. and I guess people on the center left in Europe as well. A complete holy war against what they saw as like a mean guy, <laughs> a mean guy, yeah, really. Totally. I mean, obviously, more to it. Yeah. But but um, this is not taking no. the same, it's not grabbing the same um, heart, hearts and minds and, and um it's just it's 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 somewhat surprising, but I I think I've been saying this for the past couple of years where um, it it certainly seemed that the liberal like the center left part of this country has been trying to not look at Israel because they know, they kind of know what's going on there and they're frankly embarrassed by the settler uh the settler issue and and the the increasing recognition that it's an apartheid state you can see this in the um the human rights reports that have came out um you know Ben Selim the Israeli human rights organization and then human rights watch both in two, in 2021 they both came out with large studies you know the one from human rights watch is a 200 page study and basically just goes case by case why Israel's an apartheid state. And this is Human Rights Watch. This is not this is not some fringe yeah. you know crazy marxist leftist professor. This is like a very mainstream organization. Um a lot of times Human Rights Watch is used to stir up war propaganda for things that aren't necessarily true. But in this case, you know, they they wrote this paper and um or this study and um you have to think about the donors of the donors of Human Rights Watch. A lot of them are Jewish. A lot of them are liberal yeah. Jews. So I think I think they're I think in the long run with with Israel how it depends on its diaspora for support. Like it's always going to depend on a strong diaspora um, in the United States. As people as as Jews in this country get older, they're going to lose that that connection to the you know to world war ii and the holocaust and and um you know a lot of the atrocities that were committed against jews because they won't have no they wouldn't they're no longer going to have family who who experienced that 
So they won't have those firsthand accounts. And I think if that trend continues, you'll see more apathy from American Jews uh, towards Israel, um, which, which you know, it, frankly, Israel depends on 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 you know a motivated diaspora. Yeah, and this also highlights too some of like these um, desperate, in my opinion, anti-Semitism laws that uh, Ron DeSantis's government in Florida has been like. Um, passing uh with regards to like um holocaust studies or whatever um or uh or like the dissemination of so-called anti-semitic uh propaganda which really is mostly like a legislation to clamp down any like critiques of israel like this kind of stuff is like clear um it's clear that there's like a um there is desperation among the israel first crowd to try to use legislative means to shut down anybody who dares to question like the prevailing narratives surrounding israel like literally israel's like most uh like fervent support now is like extremely online um indians and to so to some extent the modi government but that's more nuanced because of the fact that the modi government is generally anti-terrorism um for the most part but i think even then that support might be limited because if that body count gets really high um India may t end up taking more of a neutral stance because India has historically been pro-Palestinian or at least like neutral uh, or at worst neutral on the matter. I, I imagine a lot of those a lot of those uh, pro you know Israel accounts ran by Indians are more or less just anti-Muslim yeah. accounts. Yeah, it is like a proxy. Um, for, yeah, it is like a uh, the Hindutva movement. Actually, I read a, an article from uh, on the Cradle. Where they argued like that, and movement has some um, interesting Zionist um, influences and some very um, creepy connections to um, Zionism as well. But yeah, there is like a broader like it, it is seen as like um, among like Hindu nationalists like an anti-Muslim type of conflict. But <clears throat> I also think another element too with regards to U.S. Christians, um, these like. Itamar Ben Gavir types um, gaining power, they're going to be also engaging in some really unhinged and uncalibrated forms of um, anti Christian iconoclasm, um, like in places like Jerusalem and whatnot. And because of alternative media, man, like that stuff is not going to be hidden any longer. And you might start seeing some people in the US, like some uh, right wing Christians, um, sour on israel as well like the younger generations of like even republicans are not um as zionist as their boomer parents yeah have you seen the poll where it's where um they break down support for israel or sympathy yes, over yes. israel yeah. uh regarding the palestinian i think everyone's seen it where it's 80 percent boomers are pretty much 80 percent um leaning towards israel and then Gen Z is like 80% the opposite way where it's they're 80% towards Palestine um which is kind of shocking I'm surprised it's so low from from the from the Gen the Gen Z uh, generation Yeah I think there's something um you mentioned Henry um like the legacy of World War II, um, for a lot of people that's like ancient history they can't really relate to it and even the Cold War for that matter because um, even Republicans have been forced to um, really adapt their message to like the new realities of like 21st century U.S. 
politics because you can't um, always be appealing to the World War II nor the Cold War to rally people. Like, you have to talk about like, salient issues of our time. And Israel, seriously, like, the defense of Israel is just not one of them. Like, that's just the new reality of American politics um, in the for the rest of the 21st century. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I just think that time is not on Israel's side unless, like, there's... Um, some visionary leader that is able to recognize like some uh, <clears throat> to recognize that Israel has to uh, make several reforms to stay as like a functional political entity. Um, it's just it, it's um, going down a very chaotic path and it's largely um, a downstream effect of like the multipolar cultural uh, geopolitical environment that's been emerging over the last decade or so. Because a lot of countries that were now um, very much like beneficiaries of U.S. hegemony, they're going to have to really retool their domestic and foreign policies as a result of a more competitive geopolitical ecosystem. How, how exactly does multipolarity come into play here? Yes, I think that you're going to see more pressure now from countries like China and Russia to... Um, on Israel to like reconsider some of its policies and even um bolster some of its rivals like Russia and Iran's defense cooperation is tightening and that's also the case with <clears throat> China and Iran as well in the economic and de defense spheres like a stronger Iran um is is something that will put a a check on any potential Israeli expansion in the region and I just think that the more competitive things become and the fact that the U.S. cannot dedicate as many resources to the Middle East, it's going to compel Israeli policymakers to reconsider a lot of controversial policies and think twice. Like, like for example, the Gaza invasion, both from, like a Israel, um, from the potential loss of Israeli and Palestinian life and how it could also have a really nasty effect abroad because... Um, Israel has made a point trying to like normalize relations with not just like the Arab world, but even parts of Africa and um, the broader global south. And if they if they're just seen um, just brutishly beating up Palestinians and massacring them, they're what whatever diplomatic gains they've made over the last decade, they'll just evaporate. It, it, again, it always comes down to like how can they settle this? Like how can they settle this issue? Like can they can they is it within the realm of possibility for there to be some type of settlement? And again, like it's just, I think people, people who have been following and have dedicated their lives to the Israeli Palestine conflict. Most of them are just like, I've tried everything. There's nothing that will work. This is going to, this is going to be, this is going to be going on until, until either the end of times or, you know, the, the, the problems solved in a very violent way or, you know, all the Israelis leave like that's, um, that's usually the take. And, um, it is, it is, is quite gloomy to say the least. Um, because you're just going to see more of this. You're going to see more of these horrible attacks and nobody wants that. Yeah. I don't see really any, 
uh, solutions coming from the current crop of Israeli leaders, and I'm not sure what's going to happen. I, that's why I'm not very bullish about the future of Israel, um, to be honest. Well, I mean, it's going to take someone. For, you need like a you need like a U.S. president to 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 sort this out. Yeah, and, and even then, there really hasn't yeah. been there, there hasn't really been a president since George Bush Senior. That's really well. I guess Clinton too with the Oslo Accords, but more so like Bush. He's the one who kind of got the ball rolling with that. Where you know after the Iraq War, he was you know he he basically said, "All right, the time is right now, where we can try to solve this issue." And um, according to him, he he blames you know George Bush Senior blamed the Israel lobby for him not getting reelected. Um. But I mean, this current administration—I don't feel confident that they have any type of answer to this. Yes, I think foreign policy elites in the U.S. Um, really can't be trusted, and I think they've become their quality has degraded significantly in the last few decades. So there's just not many options from the U.S. either, which is why I just think that chaos um awaits like israel um it's pretty much baked into the cake because um there aren't that many rational uh diplomats uh being produced these days in the u.s and when you look at say like the so-called like restrained and realist populist right they're they're just like zionists but with better cosmetics like with the exception of like Thomas Massey, um, you really don't see many good policymakers in uh, the Republican Party that offer like any um, <clears throat> sensible, non-interventionist, like realist responses to what's going on in Israel. And on the Democrat side, you, there's still a lot of like liberal Zionist capture, but um, it is becoming uh, more or less chilly towards Israel. But I'm not sure if like the people that end up uh, the new generation of Democrat leaders will offer much of a constructive pro- uh, alternative. They um, they might just be filled with a lot of invective, but not much in terms of solutions being offered. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. 
You'll hear advice on everything from how to build confidence to how to get the best night's sleep. New episodes drop every weekday, and each one is five minutes or less, so you only have to listen a little to get a lot more out of your weekdays. Listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, well, I don't I don't really have confidence in them either. Um, you know, I was when Blinken was first was hired when he was first um, nominated to be Secretary of State. I don't know. I've, I felt a little bit like you know what he's experienced. I I think he might be a kind of a realist um, in some regard. He might just be in there to cover Joe Biden's flank, and that's to not get into any foreign policy messes while he concentrates on his domestic policy. I didn't have that negative a feeling towards him, but man, um, I was talking to um, you know Matt yeah. Ho who was, you know, worked in the State Department and he, you know, he does, he, you know, he, he met Blinken and he basically said that he's flat out incompetent. Like he's just not a competent person. And he's, and he said, he's just not, he's just not an impressive, knowledgeable guy. Um, this guy went to, I mean, he's a great guitar player. Yeah. He's a great guitar. Yeah. I mean, I think he, that's probably what is his true calling. Um, I'm pretty sure he has many talents, but he goes to Israel, and he starts. Go, he goes to the Middle East, and he, you know, he says he's going to have these meetings with with these Arab governments to try to resolve the solution. But he says he's going there as a Jew, and I'm like, why would you say yeah. that? Like, why would you say that? Going into these countries and then painting yourself on the Israeli side 100 percent as part of. As part of like, I'm I'm negotiating on behalf of them. Like you need to go in there like an even broker. And there's no wonder that these the governments just didn't show up to the meetings. Yeah, he yeah. I think the, the Saudi the Saudi delegate didn't meet, or the Saudi uh, ambassador didn't even meet with with the, with them. And then in Jordan, they said it was too unsafe for them to even come in the state. I mean, it's just it's crazy. It's pretty it's pretty. I embarrassing. think even Al Sisi um, in Egypt. Um, kind of like threw some passive aggressive shots um at Blinken too. Uh I think he said something to the yeah. effect that like yeah, Egypt has never like oppressed the Jews and all this because he was like taking um Blinken's remarks as if like they were like accusing Egypt of partaking in um anti-Jewish policies, but yeah. Um yeah, that that guy's always struck me um following his um his moves is very incompetent, and I don't think it's like unique to Blinken. I think it's like actually um, a feature of a lot of like diplomatic corps, like even like in the Trump administration. You had people like John Bolton and like Mike Pompeo. These people were like far cries from the likes of like Henry Kissinger. Say what you want about him, or pre- like Dean Rusk or other people um, that were embedded in like the U.S. diplomatic corps, like in the throughout the Cold War. Like those people. We're all like on a like different astral plane than uh, these lightweights that we have these days. Yeah, I think Ronald Reagan was actually right when he said that if um, you know business steal like government doesn't have the best mind because business steals them something along those lines. Yeah, but, um, that's actually. Pr- I think he was right yeah. with that. You you don't get the brightest in in these like a lot of them are just suck ups. Yeah. You know, like they're just career kiss ass suck ups. Um. And, you know, they get far because 
they, you know, out of some type of nepotism or, or, or whatever, but it just, it doesn't, it doesn't seem like anyone is competent. Yeah. That's what I, um, that's what I'm, um, starting to guess as well. Um, I do think that's like a sign also of like very much like civilizational, like institutional decline, because once you go to like straight up cronyism, just to have like a functioning state that does not augur well for its long-term stability whatsoever. It's it's in that, like you said before, it's not like if Trump's elected, he's going to bring in some like foreign policy squad to fix these issues. The, the sad thing is, is he, his instinct is probably better than anyone he would hire. Yeah. Unless he hire you know, unless he brings Bracken McGregor. Yeah. Yep. Like his, his instinct to, to, to work with to you know, you know pull troops out of Afghanistan and to you know get on friendly to to start building a peace with North Korea to remove troops from Syria I and mean, those were all his instincts and you know there were obviously people like I think Flynn and Bannon were 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 whispering in his ear and, and obviously those guys are not perfect at all and they're not great but they're certainly seemed to be more realistic about foreign policy than than other people he brought in i think bannon even right now he's actually taken like kind of a a very like uh hands-off approach to the israel thing he's like a zionist but he's he's not as enthusiastic from what i've seen about it compared to other <clears throat> right-wing influencers these days because man it's just like awful just going on right-wing twitter like hearing all the takes a lot of them are are genocidal. Oh yeah, and I don't mean that to yeah. be like I'm not trying to be hyperbolic. Like a lot of them are literally like you need to erase this population from the earth. Yeah, yeah. I was like that one Breitbart um, staffer, uh, Joel uh, Pollack, that like was basically calling for ethnic cleansing in a post, and everybody like screenshotted it and everything like that, and then like he walked it back like a few days later. Lord. You got to hear the things that Ben Shapiro is saying. Oh, that's like almost like is to be expected. Like that's like nothing less, man. I I did like though that one clip going around of Shapiro where he was saying, like, I think this was like circa 2014 or whatever, like a decade ago, where he was like saying, oh, like Israel's fine. It could take care of itself. And then like fast forward to the president. He's like saying this, like if U.S. to give it military aid, we're we're going to be looking at Israel potentially using nukes, like, Lord. Yeah, like a threat. Oh yeah, Mark Levin did that, did that same thing the other day, which was even creepier too. Like when he was like on Fox, like, oh my God, these conservative like uh, Zionist influencers, they're a special case of like unhinged creatures that really should not be given so much um, attention, but unfortunately. They have like hordes of people that like gobble up what they have to say. Well, the thing about the American right is that basically every single institution is is on the side of the of the center left. You know, all the institutional support, all the big donations um, are going to the Democratic candidates. Um, so the right, the only really big institution of power that they have on their side they have like three they have they have uh energy they have they have um the mic and then they have the israel lobby 
they need that. They don't have like, you know, BlackRock. I mean, I'm sure BlackRock does fun. I don't look at all their campaign contributions, but by and large, corporate America is is on the is on the center yeah, now, left yeah, DNC. Now, yeah. And like that's their only. I mean, that's only one of their only institutions of power that they they have. Yeah. And now that I think you know the attitudes are, are changing so so drastically, um, I think the 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 Israel lobby will probably go all in on on the GOP. Yeah, I think so too. Um, I actually think has kind of united a lot of the GOPs like factions because you're seeing from the populist right to. The typical like neocon um, Israel first right, they're sharing a lot of the same talking points. Some some guys in the populist right will say, "Oh, we shouldn't ha- send like troops, but oh, but like do send like military aid and stuff." But like it's largely been pro Israel across the board. It's um I think it's gonna be once the uh, Gen Z and some younger millennials come of a political age and start. <clears throat> taking power that's when you might start seeing some interesting things happen to the gop but for now i i do think they um they're firmly on the israeli side with the exception of like thomas massey who's a lone wolf um there's just not much like in terms of dissent among republicans on that issue now we're back to bush arab talking points where you're hearing the word islamofascism and you know honestly the war on terror has been turned on a lot of Trump supporters, America first type people. Maybe some of them see this as an opportunity to shift the war of terror from themselves back on the original target, which was Muslims. Another another big takeaway from this is that you're going to see a shift in policy from the Ukraine war. Oh, yeah. N- and that's like the other big thing that's coming out of here is that now this is like really the perfect opportunity to slowly back away from from all the aid. And you see that in the in um, Jack Kirby, the, pen, uh, the spokesman for oh, the Pentagon, yeah, he was, saying yeah. that. Oh, yeah, that was. Yeah. When I when I heard that, when that once that shoe drop, you know, there was like a pivot going now. I don't know what their plan is for for Ukraine. I know that I've been reading stuff about how they're diverting ammunition from Ukraine to Israel, um, which I'm sure they are. I'm not sure how this war ends, but it certainly seems that they're going to end on Russian terms. Yeah. And I honestly wouldn't be surprised if there's just... When the moment gets really, really dark and the Ukrainians feel like the U.S. has finally, truly abandoned them, that they're going to, they'll, they'll flip and just say, all right, we'll flip to the Russian, like, we'll, we'll become friendly with Russia. Like, I can, I can certainly see it or aspects of it will, will, will flip because, I mean, Ukraine is a multicultural society as well, where... You know, you you still have like pure Russian speakers who don't even speak Ukrainian in yeah. the Ukrainian armed forces. So I can see something like that happening where they, you know, there's there's enough people who are like, let's just cut our losses and and yeah, if um, I go multi-vector, to be honest, yeah, I could see that definitely. I mean, that was like Ukraine. Um, that was like pre uh, Orange Revolution. What uh, Ukrainian politics kind of looked like. 
then um, it might it might go back to like a status quo uh, ante in a way. Um, they may um, actually Ukraine may go more of the pro China route too because they had pretty warm relations with China uh, prior to the Russo Ukrainian conflict. And to be honest, China is starting to be seen in some international relations circles. As like the most stable geopolitical entity because they're not the ones funding all these crazy proxy wars or prosecuting these uh, quixotic um, <clears throat> military ventures abroad that just end in so much suffering. And that's going to be like when and with China normalizing really helping normalize like ties between Saudi Arabia and um, Iran, it's going to look a lot more appealing now than the increasingly erratic us and its pitiful satrapies in uh europe do you think that if there is ever a state that negotiates a truce or not a truce but a solution to the palestinian issue do you think that it would be china I'd say it'd probably be the most likely, to be honest, because they don't really have a lot of emotional stake in it. I mean, they, like, China engages with all Middle Eastern actors, and they do have an anti-terrorism streak, too, with the Uyghur situation, especially when you look at the fact that, like, the Uyghurs are, like, part of that uh, transnational a lot of, of factions within the Uyghur movement are part of like that transnational Sunni jihadist network that has been largely propped up by the Anglo-American Zionist axis. <clears throat> so they um they will uh China could uh potentially be a mediator in that respect to calm both sides down. And actually some polls show that um a lot of Israelis do view China very positively and um, even like that former um, Mossad um, director, I forget his name, even said like, <laughs> openly said that, yeah, this whole China-US um, geopolitical conflict, this is something that Israel should have no part of. I think it was like Yossi Cohen or somebody like that, but yeah. Uh, I could really there there you could see China um try to break this form of geopolitical stagnation and position itself accordingly, but it's got a lot of issues of its own, and I don't know um a lot a lot of these type of um geopolitical conflicts um you ha they have to a mediator like China has to gain something out from it they, they're just not going to do it out of like the good, the kindness of their heart. You know, in Israel, they, they operate the port of Haifa. Um, I don't know what their exact motivation came from with Iran and Saudi, like, you know, brokering the detente between those two nations. Um, but that, I mean, that's like a huge step to solidifying yourself as like a broker of, of peace. Because I mean, essentially that's, they kind of close the loop on the war in Yemen, in a sense, right? Yeah. I mean, I know it was more complicated than just like the proxy war, but it's interesting to see their role growing. Yes. Yeah, I, I know Chinese and Saudi relations go back to even the 
Cold War, and they've had pretty po uh, positive relations for the most part. Um, and yeah, and even like when uh, with respect to the Yemeni conflict, I th I, I think that um, the uh, Chinese did give like tacit support uh, to Saudi Arabia in terms of maintaining some degree of territorial integrity in Yemen, but. Um, I think the Chinese, they're smart in terms of like knowing that like the, the U.S. is giving uh, the whole like global south, like the emerging powers in the global south, like a, 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 an instruction manual of like what not to do abroad in terms of uh, projecting power and everything like that. So um, they definitely are exercising a lot of restraint when it comes to foreign policy that's outside their traditional sphere of influence. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode. Where I'd like to tell you a story. You can spend less time staying in the know about all things gaming and get more time to actually play the games you love with the IGN Daily Update podcast. All you need is a few minutes to hear the latest from IGN on the world of video games, movies, and television with news, previews, and reviews. You'll hear everything from Comic-Con coverage to the huge Diablo 4 launch. So listen and subscribe to the IGN Daily Update wherever you get your podcasts. That's the IGN Daily Update, wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, um, they, this, the U.S. is certainly led by example of what not yeah. to do. And like, why would they want the head? Why would they want the headache? I mean, China has so many, so many internal yeah. problems. And the thing about China that most people don't get is that it's China as a unified state has like. You know, it's not usually the norm. No. You know, typically, it's like very cyclical when it's when it's unified. A lot of times, it's divided up between warlords or different kingdoms, and um, they certainly don't want to do anything to rupture the state. You know, they have their own demographic problems and you know a lot of self-made problems. I just don't see them. You know, in regards to Taiwan, but most likely, if that issue solved, it's probably going to be solved peacefully. It's going to be solved with probably approach the, the Kuomintang taking power in Taiwan and, you know, signing some type of deal with, with yeah, Beijing. Yeah, that's what I think so, too. I also think, too, if, like, the U.S. just grows um, incredibly um, unstable and it starts, like, losing both clout domestically and abroad, um, there, there are um, elements of the uh, Kuomintang and also... The Taiwanese uh, military elites and 
um, economic elites that have been impressed by mainland China's um, economic growth. And funny enough, um, if you look at the way that the CCP has structured the Chinese economy, it does have um, some eerie similarities to Chiang Kai-shek's economic model for Taiwan when he was in power. So there, uh, it is very conceivable that the Taiwan question is handled peacefully if the Kuomintang um, retakes control there and a lot of other shoes drop, like say like a loss of U.S. prestige because at, at some point um, the U.S., if it doesn't get its stuff sorted out, like it's going to lose some prestige on the world stage and people, um, other countries are not going to be as keen to follow its model as religiously as before. Do you think that there's already been a break in that where where um, countries are starting to look to other ants like you know to to uh, to look for other partners or or do you think there are some specific examples of countries that have clearly lost respect for the United States? I mean, you have like the formation of I'm not the I think it's largely like a lot of hype, but like bricks and like the expansion of that. Um, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization as well, like the rise of that prominence. Um, and I think there's also starting to be like growing like anti-American, a resurgence of that, of anti-American sentiment to abroad. Um, it's really going to be, um, <clears throat> you're probably going to see this happen more in authoritarian countries abroad that have had a lot of NG, um, Western NGOs um, trying to uh, stir things up where th that shoe will drop and then it could start spreading um, to parts of even Europe. I, at one point, I think um, Emmanuel Macron in France uh, was um, condemning a lot of Black Lives Matter related type of demonstrations and even like intellectual movements surfacing in French academia as like American um <clears throat> as like an American type of style like infiltration that has nothing to do with like the problems that France is facing or has any like historical basis whatsoever with uh French like like the French political scene and um to me it, it might it will ultimately take I think um some right-wing populist governments to start taking power like in Europe to see that really happen. Um, they're actually like more American skeptic. Not like the Maloney government in Italy, which has been like a very loyal satrapy of the U.S. thus far. Something something that I, I really wanted to get your take on was this, because you, you had said this to me in a text, that you thought that there, you know, with one of the reasons why the U.S., was hesitant about Israel invading Gaza was, um, you know, that Hezbollah has a lot more power than than just in the Middle East, that they're, you know, they have global networks. And I know that they have, there's like Hezbollah in Latin America. Um, you know, you being from Venezuela and knowing the region, do you know anything about that? Like, what is what is Hezbollah's reach in South America? Yeah, in South America, there are um, significant um, Lebanese, Syrian, and even Palestinian diasporas there. Um, 
They're not Muslims. Most of them tend to be uh, Arab Christians, but they're pretty sympathetic to the Palestinian cause. Um, when I, in fact, when I was in Chile, which is uh, I lived there for two years, it, it it's like the um, has the largest uh, Palestinian population outside of the Middle East, or one of the largest, definitely in the top three. <clears throat> you routinely saw huge <clears throat> pro-Palestinian demonstrations, but with respect to Hezbollah, they um. They're very likely in the countries that have a presence um, in countries that have these diasporas where they can kind of blend in. And especially Venezuela, which is an, uh, which is an ally, a strong ally of Syria and um, Iran. In fact, Venezuela is a large Syrian diaspora to boot. And there's even been um, several members of like the Venezuelan um, National Assembly that have fought that fought in the... Syrian civil war on the side of the Assad government. So you think that what Hezbollah has like just like sympathizers in in South America or more so like actual like cells in South America? They might have like they might have like a good deal of sympathizers and even some cells. They could cause some damage there. I mean, <clears throat> you had like those um attacks like in um Buenos Aires um that were like attributed to Iran and Hezbollah. Despite, there's like some evidence that um, it might not be so clear, but on paper they could have like some cells activated there. And I I wouldn't put it past like Iran and them to do that because um, Iran tends to respond very asymmetrically to the U.S. And what better way to poke it an eye by um, stirring up trouble in the Western Hemisphere? Because like now the U.S. is is dealing with. Um, with all of its maneuvers abroad, it's not not just dealing with like non-state blowback. It's starting to do starting to deal with like great power or emerging power blowback, which is a different animal altogether. Do you think that someone can come across the border with from like someone can call come across the the west the the southern border with? the intent to cause problems, whether that be, you know, I mean, use your imagination of what kind of problems a, someone could cause, um, with sympathies to Iran. Yeah, perhaps I tend to think it might happen more, um, in like, um, an ally of the U S and Latin America more so than happening on American soil. Cause I think like, um, U.S. like border security, at least from like um, a ter- uh, anti like counterterrorism standpoint, um, has really beefed up since nine eleven, and also like uh, other traditional routes of entry into the U.S. I think it's gonna be a lot harder to do that. I think it's more likely that you could see um, American assets targeted in um, Latin American countries, which have very sketchy. Um, defense architectures and counterterrorism measures for that to happen like there was a i think there were in colombia there was i think the colombian police they they stopped there was like an assassination attempt on like an israeli ambassador or something like that man i gotta read the yeah colombia is crawling with uh, Assad spooks oh yeah, yeah. Well, did you hear about how the Israeli ambassador and was thrown out of the of the? They got into a big fight with the Colombian ambassador. 
or with the with a Colombian representative. I don't know who he got into a fight with. Um, I didn't read the whole article, obviously. Yeah, but it ended up being like a hissy fit fight where they started calling each other Nazis. Yeah, I saw something like that. Yeah, Gustavo Petro, the uh, current president of Colombia, he's an interesting figure. Um, he's uh, definitely exercising all options on the um, world stage, and he um, is starting to become a thorn in the side of a lot of like the right wing elements of like the um, Latin American like international affairs like lobby. Who's in the Who's in the the right wing international affair lobby? Like, who does that represent? Oh, people like Marco Rubio. Um, okay. Yeah, people like him. Um, there's a guy I, I forget what I think he was associated with the American Enterprise Institute. Uh, Roger Noriega. He um, he's like really plugged in to the Latin American like right wing think tank network and he's been a constant booster of like these like absolutely crappy uh neoliberal right wing governments of the US props up and those guys um are also huge Zionists like you go any scratch any Latin American right winger that's like based in Miami all the way down to Buenos Aires and you have like a freaking Zionist there. Like even that um, eccentric um, Argentinian presidential candidate, Javier Milei is a big time Zionist um, despite his very um, interesting uh, economic proposals such as like abolishing Argentina's um, central bank. How about um, the president of El Salvador, uh, Bekele? So he, he, he had that tweet the other day where he denounced Hamas, but is actually kind of ambiguous. I mean, that's pretty easy to to announce Hamas. Yeah. Like, no, no one, no one, like, no one is celebrating the terrorist attack yeah. in Israel. Besides, really French French yeah. people. But um, I've, I saw a Times of, uh, I think it was a Times of Israel or a Jerusalem Post article where this was a, like a few years ago where um, he, um, where they said like he was like a friend of Israel, but um, he hasn't really gone public on the issue. And interestingly, he did have a meeting with Seyfedin Amous and he, Sifuddin Amous is the author of the Bitcoin standard. He's a Palestinian Jordanian that um, is very anti-Zionist. And he um, is pretty good friends with Bukele. So I'm not sure if he's had an impact on Bukele's views on the Israel matter. But I did hear one um, one guy um, from... Uh, this one um, right-wing think tank. His name is Joseph uh, Humide, Joseph Humeyer, um, the Center for a Free uh, for a Secure um, Society or something like that. It's a pretty it's a pretty right-wing like uh, hawkish think tank where he expressed some um, some misgivings about Bukele because of some connections his family had to um certain iranian businesses but like that's like the most i've seen um i've heard about kelly and it's very speculative yeah um 
because he's like, whenever you hear the mainstream press and and um, in the U.S. talk about him, it's always like, oh, Latin America is getting a fascism problem, and this is this is the guy who's starting it. Yeah, he um he's very heterodox for sure. He doesn't um resemble like he has like some similarities to um to what's it called like se- several <clears throat> like right wing dictators that the U.S. government has propped up in the past. But he's also willing to stir the pot on certain issues that will anger elements of the U.S. Uh, deep state too. Like I just typed in I, Bukele in Google, and the first thing that pops up is Amnesty International. President Bukele engulfs the country in a human rights crisis after three years in government. Yeah, the NGO network absolutely hates him for sure. And I know he's just like, like what's I guess he's just diff- against the. He just represents authoritarianism. Is that the reason why? Like I. He's like I, I'm not. I don't know why certain networks hate him so much. Yeah, he's just like a an authoritarian. Uh, he's just like an authoritarian that <clears throat> largely opposes many of the holy sacraments of um, the Washington foreign policy elites. Uh, he's a big law and order guy. Um, funny enough, he's a millennial too. And he is in many respects kind of like an MBS of like uh, Latin America in that he, he is willing to use some like really oftentimes um, like ham-fisted authoritarian measures to get his way. And he's an interesting figure to watch. Um, actually, he was also... Um, pretty neutral about Russia's invasion of Ukraine too. He's um on a geopolitical level he he will be kind of curious to see um what he does with respect to China as well cuz China has had a <clears throat> growing degree of influence across Latin America. Yeah, man, even a lot of a lot of uh conservative types Tucker Carlson had a special on it, and I was like, "Man, this is just this is dumb." Um, I mean, how how true is that? Like, how is is that like a negative thing? Like, what's your opinion on China's growing influence in Latin America? Um, I think it's kind of like natural, to be honest. Um, in terms of economic affairs, I don't think it's that much of a threat in that respect. I think that if it does like set up a military <clears throat> presence in Latin America. I think it's just the product of the U.S. overstepping its um, geopolitical boundaries, to be honest. But um, I just think a lot of it's like overhyped. Um, yeah. Yeah, me too, man. I think it's just like I don't know what's what's the big deal. It's not like they're landing, they're putting you know boots on the grounds here or, or anything like that. But um, I just realized that we're an hour, we're over an hour and twenty minutes. Um, time really flew by on this podcast. Um, so I'm. I'm going to wrap it up right here. But before we, we close this, let everyone know, because I listen to your podcast, El Nino Speaks. I really do enjoy it. Um, and I read your stuff when it comes out and follow you on Twitter, of course. Let everyone know where to find your work. Yeah, you can find my um, <clears throat> my uh, p- 
podcast on Substack by Substack, Jose Nino Unfiltered. The podcast is El Nino Speaks. You can find it there. You can also download it on iTunes and Spotify. And my Substack is uh, josbcf.substack.com. And then you can follow me on X, formerly known as Twitter, at Jose Al Nino. Those are like the best places. Nice to check out my work. Nice, and I and I will have all the I will have the uh, the links in the description. Um, Jose, thanks so no much, problem, man, man, for joining. Take care. how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own stay on top of the latest financial and market news with yahoo finance a podcast that releases new episodes almost every day you'll hear a brief overview of the biggest news in the financial world all in three minutes or less right after markets close check out yahoo finance wherever you get your podcasts that's yahoo finance wherever you get your podcasts